No, baby, put that one back. Mm -mm. See, look here. You see all of this? This is cheap. We don't want that. We want something that's made to last. Hey, this is Michelle Spiva, and I want to welcome you to today's podcast of Wisdom Smack. So sit back, relax, and listen with me as I tell you a story. And we get into how you should look for things and be someone who is made to last. I'll see you on the flip. When I was a young kid, I remember my mother and sometimes my grandmother, but more so my mother, going to estate sales and garage sales on the weekends and taking us with her. And during those times, she showed us how to identify quality. I remember her teaching us how to look at furniture, uh, to see the marksmanship and the, the signifiers of what was quality and what wasn't. Um, I also remember her showing us how to look at clothing. She had been a seamstress, and so she would show us how to turn the garment inside out, look at how it was assembled, and search for the bones of how things were made. And that is how she began to teach us how to spot uh things that had quality and were made to last as opposed to things that were just made <laughs> for disposable, you know, ness and, uh, raggedy cheap is you know words that she said. And when I, I, when I grew up, I, I started to, uh, realized that not everybody had received this type of learning and knew how to spot quality as opposed to quantity or fads or trends like my mother and my grandmother had instilled in us. And so it was very, um, it was something. Uh, as I remember my mother uh, continuing her love of shopping, but also complaining that it became harder and harder to find good quality stuff and that everything was just cheap junk. <laughs> and and so that, that brings us to today's wisdom smack. So uh, as I promised, I wanted to tell you a bit of a story. So permit me, if you will, to take you a little bit, take you back a little bit uh, through history. Now, I know that we've talked a lot about uh, different concepts and things, and I want to continue to keep this where it's about we. It's um, us on a small level, individual, you know, individually. But if you will, just permit me for a moment to talk in a macro level where I talk about uh, the times and movements. Okay? All right. So, it is the turn of the century, and... Uh, the 20th century. So moving from the 19th, uh, from the 19th to the 20th century. And there is unrest around the world. A lot of monarchies have worn thin and people are rising up to where they want their independence. So much so that a lot of things happen. A lot of leaders rise up and you get unrest in uh, the European nations and World War I kicks off. World War I is fought, and after that, uh, the world has to reassemble itself. Out of those wars, uh, out of that war, there is a tension, a simmering. And uh, I've already talked about watching that simmer on another uh, podcast. And 
you know, how to look for and what to spot, how to spot it. Okay, so there is a, a simmer underneath of unresolved tensions and those types of things. And also out of that comes a new a new uh, thought group of uh, people. Now, in the past, I have talked about uh, one of the the people that's going to take the main stage for today's story, and that is Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was Sigmund Freud's nephew twice over, both on his father's side and his mother's side. He was uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew. And he adored Sigmund Freud to the point where he would go and visit him and uh, spend his summer t- summers with him, idolizing him and his work. And Edward Bernays uh, was not a psychologist. He wasn't a uh, psychiatrist. He was a uh, industrialist and he loved to study people from a different aspect. So whereas his uncle studied people for their, uh, the psyche of them, uh, how they thought and behaved, he uh, would observe people as a part of a group so that he did not necessarily look at the individuality of people as much as he looked at how they behaved when they were in a movement. Uh, and I can only speculate, but I will say that coming uh, as a product coming out of uh, this first war, uh, world war and being a young man in his prime, it was an advantageous thing to look at people in such a way because now you have got the beginning of industrialism where there is a need and he is fulfilling the need for people to look at people as resources. And so thus, he and others around this time start looking at the crowd and um, the wisdom or otherwise of the crowd and how the crowd behaves differently. Now, why is this important today? And what in the world has this got to do with cheap, cheap stuff, raggedy stuff, throwaway stuff? Well, I'm going to get to that. Give me a moment. So Everbernese uh, starts to develop uh, ways for companies, uh, states, governments, and even countries to learn how to uh, work with their citizens. Uh, Yeah, to get them to do and to behave and to be. And so he started uh, a new way of uh, learning how to get your people to do what you want. He did it uh, scientifically as well um, as observationally. So he would have focus groups because of it. With Bernays, we we have focus groups uh, where they bring in a sampling of people. Uh, some of uh, his his ways of doing things gave rise to the development. We can't credit him with it, but it gave rise to the development of polling and uh, trying to get samplings and sample sizes to figure out how people were moving and thinking about um, politics and uh, the ills of the day. And it is even said 
that he uh, got concerned because a lot of his writings were read by an ambitious upstart in Germany who gave credit to his writings as uh, how this person came to power and uh, gave him the blueprint for getting uh, his people um, into his movement, and that was Adolf Hitler. So much so that they used to call what he would do as propaganda, and they changed it, changed the name of it to public relations. Yeah. I've often talked about how he is the reason why women smoke. For the most part, he uh, worked with companies, marketing companies, to get them to uh, understand how to better market their things because of some of the things that were done uh, through his legacy they did market uh, research and focus groups and, and started to learn how to sell everything from cars to uh, instant cake mixes to uh, electronics to getting people to believe in regimes. It, 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 was, it was crazy. And so out of this, we then move into this World War II. And the war is fought and won uh, by, you know, certain forces. And boom, we are really in the thick of the industrial age where now the goal of telling people, you know, there is a chicken in every pot. Because remember, these are the same people who had come out of the Great Depression after World War One. Now there is a win for certain countries in World War Two, and they have the ability to rule the world. The only issue is, is that the power uh, did not necessarily just go to the governments. The power then moved to Wall Street. Uh, and um, the merchants, because now you have people who have jobs and automations and they have more discretionable income. And these merchants wanted this money. And so the merchants start c- calling on Edward Bernays and his ilk or people like him to teach them how to get more of this money that these people are making. Because after the war, people were stockpiling their money and uh, saving it. They, they had a huge savings. In a previous podcast, I talked about how, um, how much people saved and the difference between 19, uh, the 1930s all the way up to the 2000s and how we used to have people saving well into the double digits. And now if you can get above 5% of people saving on a regular basis, that's an anomaly. Okay, but let's get back on this. Um, so it's uh, around it's, it's around the 1940s, late, late 1940s. The World War II has ended. People 
are now making money and uh, soldiers are back home and there are a lot of factory jobs with pensions and no longer is it just about people who make it in onto Wall Street and all these other places, but now you have people in Middletown, America, who have the guarantee of a good, solid job, but they're going to work and have one job for the rest of their life and have a really good salary where they can live on that salary, one salary to take care of the family where they can afford to have a home, an automobile, food on the table, and to be able to raise their kids. And as I said before, then you had the merchants, the uh, coming uh, to Edward Bernays to try to figure out how do we get people to uh, continue to purchase our stuff. So there is this, this term that is called plan obsolescence, and it took hold in the 20s and 30s, and it really started to show itself in by the 1950s. So 1920s through the 30s, plan obsolescence started to come about. And let me just tell you a little bit of what it is. So planned obsolescence. This is when a man, it's, it's, it's like a manufacturing philosophy where when you had a mass, mass production of something that was popular, the goal was to make it uh, built to fail, meaning that it had a definite lifespan. And so it was built to fail, meaning that it was built so that you would have to replace it often. And thus they made them less durable uh, over time. Uh, It became even more where they would speed it up, meaning that the quality would continue to deteriorate. So whereas things used to be made out of good cast iron or steel, it would go on to devolve down through the ages where it's flimsy plastic and it's only made to last a few years, okay? And so uh, they even had people starting to write about it in the 1960s about this systematic attempt of business to make people wasteful, debt-ridden, and permanently discontented, meaning that This is where the hedonistic treadmill of always wanting more started to really take effect. All right, so now I've talked about this planned obsolescence uh, that takes root in the 20s and 30s after the first First World War. And then after the... the end of World War II, we're in full-on... uh, throwaway society. So lo and behold, August 1st, 1955, in the most popular magazine worldwide, Life Magazine, an article appears that talks about a th- uh, throwaway living. And this is the first time that someone is shining the spotlight on this. And in this particular um, magazine article, the author talks about, and I tried to find it in archives. I couldn't find it, you guys, to give you give proper attribution to this author. But I know that it was uh, an article from August 1st, 1955 in Life Magazine. And so what the author finally talks about to everyone, because this is not just about uh, talking to uh, business people. 
this person starts to sound the clarion alarm that something is wrong and you we have to wake up and stop this throwaway lifestyle. This author talks about how products are made to fail and they're made to fail so that they can be replaced and thus to keep people continuously having to buy, thus strongly uh, feeding into a thirst, a hunger, and a lust for consumerism. Yes. All right. So what we're now looking at is we're looking at a durability problem. Now, to be durable, that means it has a permanency about it. It's, It's able to resist wear and tear and decay. And like I said before, Uh, prior to this onslaught of discretionable income growing in America, which was leading the way in this, by the way, uh, things were built to last. You you could have an automobile that you bought in 1920 and in 1945, it was still working and every, it was this motor was made simple enough uh, simply enough for your your uncle to go out there and figure out uh, the carburetor and how to keep it up the parts uh, were available and they were very well made and so you did not have a lot of um, decay and degradation of the integrity of the product and like I said before uh, the merchants were not having this. They were like, nope, we need to have them buy often. And thus there was a PR campaign uh, that Edward Bernays uh, was commissioned to do for, I believe it was Chrysler and some others, to get people to believe that you needed a car every two years. So they went from keeping cars for 20 plus years to being convinced that to keep up with the Joneses, to to show your affluence that you needed new cars all the time. You needed a car for yourself to go to work and you needed one for your your spouse who was staying at home. And most of the time it was female um, who would stay at home with the kids. You needed her to be able to have a car as well to to drive, to go and run errands and pick up the kids and all of this. And then it wasn't good enough that you had a car every two years. Oh no, you needed to have new appliances and you needed to have new other new things. All the while, while this uh, planned obsolescence of the products getting worse and worse uh, was prevailing. And not only that, the pricing was going up such that they moved into where uh it wasn't it, it, it wasn't where you could charge something and have a charge account and you pay it down a, a minute um, you know over time. No, they started pricing things for them to be put on credit. Uh, credit where you could have this revolving credit with interest and you pay a little bit and you can get all of this stuff and boom, they've got you for many years for a product that they know is not going to last but a few. And so Fast forward to today, and we now have um, consumerist-addicted behaviors. All of us, for the most part, we've got landfills full of junk to the point now where we're shipping um, 
first world countries are shipping stuff to Africa and to Asian uh, countries to handle our, our crap and our trash. And uh, it's so much trash that we've got floating plastic islands killing and uh, polluting our waters and all of that. And this is not a rant or a rave on any of this. I'm just showing you uh, how this throwaway society came to be and what in the world does it have to do with you? Now, there have been uh, some talks about how the jump was made from looking at products as throwaways to looking at people as throwaways. Because as consumerism grew and capitalism thrived, uh, how could you expect people to make a hard line stop between a product and a person? And there is a great argument for it because, as you'll possibly notice, that those same jobs where people in the 50s could uh, work until they retired and get that proverbial golden watch, the parachute with a pension and all of that, that they were guaranteed for their hard work uh, for the rest of their life. It then became where, no, we can't do that. We're going to move you from pensions to 401ks and you're going to have to be responsible for your own um, afterlife, you know, after the companies. And then it moved from there to like, no, you really don't expect to retire from this job. Uh, you use it now to build up your skills to, to move to other jobs such that they make compensation where you only really got a raise if you move somewhere, because incremental raises for staying at the same company for more than five years decreased to where you were stagnant and you could be easily being there 10 years and making way less than someone walking in the door with less experience. And so it got to the point where people became these throwaway resources in companies because guess what? They cost too much to keep them. And now that's where we are today. And so I want to use this time, and thank you for letting me tell you the story. I want to use this this time as um, the back part of, of today's podcast to talk about how to not be a throwaway into how to make yourself someone who is able to last. All right. So the first thing I want to talk about is, is I want to talk about how to uh, move toward durability. There are some concepts that have been coming out uh, that have now taken hold and people are realistically looking at them. And a few of these things are the, the movement of minimalism, of uh, getting rid of stuff. Uh, and one of the things that I, I, I want to just say here is that this hoard, uh, we have now, we have a pathology with some people where they are hoarders. It used to be in the old days, you didn't, you, you could have hoarding, hoarding, but it, it wasn't like it is today. It, it, it wasn't hoarding of junk. <laughs> it used to be people who hoarded, they hoarded antiques and they hoarded things that kept their value for the sake of having legacy to pass on to their families when they left here. Now you've got people hoarding and keeping disposable newspapers and, uh, and junk, and uh, as a whole, the I know in, in the United States, one of the most stable businesses is storage. 
storage companies. That's one of the most stable businesses because people are having to pay long-term fees to keep their junk. You move from place to place and each place you pick up something and you don't want to take it to the next place. So guess what? You store it. And now they are, they are setting site. Uh, saying that the average storage on large units is upward of seven years for people and it is just continuing to elongate itself. So minimalism, clearing out the clutter and the crap and this hoarding pathology is uh, being um, eroding, it's, it's starting to erode our society and it's not just the elderly that are doing it anymore. No, you got more and more people that are hoarding and using these objects and attaching meaning to these objects of um, identity and identification uh, because the cycle of uh, consumerism and continuing to gather more and more and more is making them feel like they are identified by the stuff they have. All right. So the next thing that you can do real quick to move towards durability is to downsize. Uh, the tiny house movement has been um, taking off and with it there has become some good and some bad. The good is that a lot of people are uh, able to get back into saving for long term. You've also got a movement of people who are retiring in their 30s because they are living frugally and living on way less then um, they they need, and it has been causing some problems for certain co- communities who want to outlaw these temporary tiny homes because they can't get the money that they could for land usage, uh, taxation, and uh, all of the different stuff uh, that comes with a home that is uh, quickly becoming a relic of the latter part of the 20th century, now that we're in the 21st. Another thing is getting off the grid and having self-sustainability projects. Um, Self-sustainability, when we're looking at uh, the sustainability, looking at getting back down to the main theme of what you want to have in your life and encouraging people to not seek for happiness. Instead, seek for purpose and usefulness. I talked a little bit about that yesterday uh, when we talked about having self-restraint and that uh, to play your part, you have to be able to play your part. And you can't if you are under um, uh, a heft of uh, debt and, and, and stuff. Okay, and so now the next thing I want to get to is uh, as you're moving towards durability, this will allow you to start being able to have contingency plans, have even a legacy if you are working for yourself. Being able to have succession plans for what happens when you can't work, uh, having long-term uh, strategies that will take you into whichever, uh, whatever is the next uh, season of your life because you are moving more towards durableness, long-termness than being caught up in the immediacy of chasing after the elusive happiness that comes with stuff. 
And then the last thing is, is to become more durable, to shake off all of the stuff that has to do with a throwaway society. Um, Look at how to become more adaptable to making drastic changes that get you free from the encumberment of debt and of things. That is where I am currently, looking at adaptability. Uh, I've even talked about the adaptability quotient and how it will be the premier intelligence that people source for because it will make you highly useful because you will be able to turn on a drop of a dime to take in a totally different environment because you will not have emotional attachments to stuff and emotional attachments to ways of life. Your emotional attachments will be towards the essence of who you really are. Because when you remove all of the extra uh, stuff, I mean, when you remove having to support a house that takes up stuff that you haven't touched in five years, uh, and when you remove the need to have a certain amount of income coming in to afford to babysit all of this stuff that is made cheaply and more cheaply and made just so that you have to keep buying it over and over again. Can somebody say cell phones that cost a lot of money and start conking out in two years? I know I can. It will help you to get a freedom where you become made to last because you are not, you are no longer trapped by certain things. Now, as I'm closing down, I want to talk about something really quickly that I'm doing, uh, getting into, I'm just starting it. And that is, uh, I've not really ever been uh, a person to play uh, video games, but because I am looking at these types of things and sharing them with you, I have decided that I am going to start um, on a civilization building game. It's called Civilization. It's been around since the 90s. And they're on version six, about to possibly come out with version seven. And so I'm going to be uh, learning that if you know how to play civilization, drop me a note. Let me, let me know. But I want to learn how to do that because I see going forward, those people who understand how to have sustainability, not just for themselves, but for their lifestyle. Those are the people who are going to be able to, yes, have sustainability. And the best way to do it is to practice in a game before you have to do it in real life. Yep. So guess what? Yes, my time is up and I do thank you for yours. This has been Michelle Spiva with another podcast of Wisdom Smack. Thank you. Don't forget to like, share, support us. Use our Amazon link at michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ and check the show notes for ways to uh, contact me and any other stuff that you'd like to know. And I'm going to see you tomorrow. Thank you. Bye. And that's going to do it for today's podcast of Wisdom Smack with Michelle Spiva. If you like this podcast, please help us get the word out. Like, comment, subscribe, and even share. And if you really like it, 
please help us continue to get the word out by considering using this show's link for Amazon. So when you want to go to Amazon and you do all of your general shopping, uh, please use michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. It's simple as that. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And this show might receive a little bit of commission that will go towards helping to further get these episodes out to you and to others. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack. Bye.